I commend Psalm 24 to you. It's the source of that old Christmas song. Did any of you grow up singing that in the Christmas season? From what I've known, uh, that song was kind of lost for a while. Probably wasn't Christmassy enough for somebody. But really, that's the story of Christmas. I, I know we focus on the incarnation, and that is a mystery and a marvel, and it came in the fullness of time, but that was the beginning of the drama of the gospel unfolding before us. And so I love when our congregation sings that. We usually bookend the season singing that song to remind us of the fullness of the grace in that story of Jesus. Really, we're studying the story of Jesus because after his ministry there, his death, his resurrection, he commissioned his disciples to advance the kingdom as his church. He promised them that the gates of hell would not withstand against that onslaught of the gospel. So what we read in the book of Acts is that gospel's spread. We've, we've read all these cities and locations there around the Mediterranean, and we can't pronounce them all, and we probably don't know much about the history of them, but we do know this, with each verse that gives us another city, we're being reminded of the advance of the gospel, that Christ's words were true, and they continue to be today. I want us to consider Paul's words this morning in our text as he gathered the elders from the church, and he says to them in verse 18, you yourselves know how I lived among you. You know how I lived among you. I want to consider Paul's life as the model of a life given to the advance of the gospel. Do any of you associate model trains with Christmas? Maybe that's kind of just a nostalgic, traditional, you know, Christmas card picture or something. Maybe you had someone in the family set up trains at the Christmas break. Anybody have a train around your tree growing up? Just a few of you, yeah. That, that, that's pretty old-fashioned. Uh, why were they called model trains? If you know anything about that train kind of collector's hobby, you know that these model trains are called models, not necessarily because you put them together, although some of them do require that, they're called models because when you look at a toy train, by it, you would know what a real train would look like. If you took a magnifying glass to a model train, you would have a pretty good idea of what a full-size train would look like. They were designed to be an exact representation of a real train. And so the models were known by their scaled-down size. You've probably heard the most familiar size of trains by its letters, H-O, trains. A ratio of 1 to 87. This little train was 1 87th the size of the big train you would see on the tracks. Well, as with trains, so with people. We don't use ratios, but we do understand the idea of a visible figure being an example we use the term role model. 
You can look at a person and by their example, the way they fulfill their role, we could learn something about how to conduct our own lives. In our text, we hear Paul say, you yourselves know how I lived among you. He's saying, I was an example. I was a role model. Paul goes on to describe the life that he lived as an example, as a model. So I want us to ask this question. How can you live the model Christian life? That may sound like you're in deep water, like, oh, not me. No, 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 no. Don't look at me to be the model Christian. But I would look up from the pages of Scripture and ask, well, why not? Why would you be content to be a poor example of a Christian who lives, according to Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount, seeking first the kingdom of God? Are we really content to leave here saying, oh, I'm no role model for Christians and I'm good with that? So let's ask the question, how can you live the model Christian life and then look at the text here to find some answers? I think the first answer comes pretty quickly after Paul says, you know how I lived among you, because then in verse 19, he begins to describe his life among them. And from his life, I want us to learn what it means for us to be model Christians. Now, someone might argue, isn't this text really for pastors? After all, here's this apostle Paul. He's called for the elders of the church, and he's talking to them. So isn't this like a pastor's conference? Can the rest of us go home now and come back next week for whatever that holds for us? Well, I think by the nature of Paul saying, I want to remind you of how I lived among you, that that, that brings it down to every Christian's kind of understanding and grasp. He's not saying this is how you go about preaching the word, though he will reference his public teaching. He's saying, you know me, not just from some rhetoric uh, on a platform. You know me by the life I lived among you. So I want us to look at this model life among the church and say, I can do that. By God's grace, I can do that. I can live that kind of life before my children. I can help my spouse by being a model. I can sit among a congregation as a model Christian, knowing that we're not saying all those things as I'll be the perfect person all the time. But generally, we should be able to say, my goal, my purpose is to try to get it right. So what does that look like? What does getting it right look like? What does a model Christian look like? Verse 19, Paul begins to describe what he means by saying that he lived among them in a certain way. Verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. If you haven't been with us for a few weeks, you could look back the previous chapter and catch up and realize there was a, a massive riot in Ephesus. 
They filled the arena there, which history tells us would hold 25,000 people, and for two hours chanted this dark commitment to the gods of the city. Not a, not a pleasant experience. I've talked to missionaries that have been in foreign fields and have, and have heard the, the, the Muslim prayers ringing out from those towers or they've heard on certain religious days mass crowds chanting to Allah. And it can be a bit unsettling to think how, how evident it is to be in the vast minority. It can be a very fearful thing apart from faith. And as we heard prayed earlier, a, a calling of God to go to these places. So the church was, was struggling with this great opposition, and Paul references it again, all these plots to silence the voice of the gospel. So how do we live a model life? What do we see in the life of Paul? If we're going to live a model life, we start with something that's not really that complicated. It doesn't require signing up for a seminary course. The text is clear. A model life begins when you serve with humility. That's almost redundant. Service is an act of humility. Now, now certainly it may not always be so because someone's heart could be filled with pride wanting to display their heart to serve people. But true service is, is lowly. It's recognizing, as Philippians 2 says, that everyone else's needs are more important than mine. It's John 13, where Jesus in the upper room, on the night that he would be betrayed and begin his suffering to death, laid aside his teacher garment and said, I'm not standing here in that role anymore. And instead, he, he wrapped the servant towel around him and washed the feet of those that should have washed his feet. So what that story is telling us is, I don't really care if you're a husband or wife. I'm not here preaching this morning on those roles. I'm saying that the heart of a Christian servant sees right through those roles and only recognizes need and seeks to meet it. There's no expectation of being served or having other people under me. No, because Jesus, John 13 says, knowing that he was from God, chose to serve his disciples as their master and as their Lord. We need to have a better eye and a better heart for humble service. I want you to see a few descriptions of this serving that Paul gives. He says first that we serve with humility as to the Lord. His language is serving the Lord. That participle describes how I lived among you. How was I living among you? I was living among you in the act of serving the Lord. Well, it's an interesting expression, though serving the Lord sounds normal to us. When we think of what Paul is saying, he's saying, you know how I lived among you. You saw what I did. I was doing all the one another's. I was giving the gospel to the unbelieving Jews and Gentiles. I was teaching and going house to house, discipling you. It sounds like he should say, 
You know the life I lived among you, serving you faithfully. But instead, he summarizes his long-term stay in Ephesus and all his ministry among them as serving the Lord. It's because he understood he had a right perspective of serving others. We do that as to the Lord. Jesus describes the final judgment day, the separation of the sheep and the goats. And it's an interesting text in Matthew because he doesn't say, I will separate those who have repented and believed from those who have not. He says he separated them based on what he observed of them. He said, when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. When I was hungry, you fed me. You are the ones that will enter into the joy of heaven. He's not saying good works are what gets you to heaven. He's saying good works are what evidence the heart that has been awakened to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We must be a serving people. We must serve the Lord as we serve others. This will, this will rearrange your thinking when it comes to unloading the dishwasher and caring for the needy children. It won't be, well, my husband and I, we're 50-50. Half the time he gets up at night and half the time I get... No, there's not that kind of accounting. It's just all about who, who can serve. How can I help? Uh, who has the energy to crawl out of bed and do it this time? It's not about keeping track. It's always about who can serve the most. Because Jesus said the greatest in the kingdom is servant of all. I think when Jesus said that, he completely understood what was going to unfold in Philippians 2. That God has given Jesus a name above every name. The greatest servant becomes the highest exalted. And in Jesus' words, the greatest in the kingdom are those who serve. The question is not who will be the greatest in heaven. That's the greatest servant, Jesus Christ. The question is, who's next in line? Who are the great servants that are going to vault to the top of heaven's ranks because they gave themselves to lowly service in this life? Second, we see that serving with humility means that we have to serve when life is hard. It's interesting that Paul's descriptions of serving are serving the Lord and then serving with tears and with the trials and the plots of the Jews. We serve with humility even when it's difficult. Serving is not often glamorous. There's not a lot of recognition for lowly servants. Serving is rarely enticing. Think of it. Big wedding happens, right? Well, most people are tired and want to go home, but somebody's got to clean up. Thank you, family and friends. And then even after the cleanup, you know, there's usually like big bags of trash and the, the dumpster's three acres across the parking lot, and it's just easy to kind of leave them by the door. Somebody will get them tomorrow or something. 
The old saying about serving is there's always room at the bottom, right? Usually there's not a competition for cleaning the toilets and taking out the trash. It's not always enticing. And frankly, as Paul's point is, on a much more serious and weighty level, sometimes serving is costly. Sometimes it's going to take its toll on you. Serving might leave you scarred. You may never be the same for serving the way that God calls you to serve. So we serve as to the Lord. We serve when life is hard. But may I remind you that the gospel story, according to Philippians 2, is the story of Jesus, who served with humility at great cost. He humbled himself and took on himself the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of man, and being found in that fashion, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. It's the humility in serving that comes at a cost. So don't spend a lot of time figuring out what it's going to cost you to serve. Just know, according to Philippians 2, that before Jesus could be your savior, he had to be your servant. He had to be willing to humble himself, to serve you, to make you successful in God's eyes, righteous in God's eyes, forgiven, justified. So serve this week. It may not be your job, husband. It may not be what you thought was your task, wife. Teenagers, children, serve your siblings, serve your parents. I know it's not your turn to vacuum or to unload the dishwasher, but maybe you do it because your sibling is busy or doesn't feel well. We can serve each other. Paul would tell a young man, Timothy, don't let anyone despise your youth. You be the example of the believer. So teenagers, elementary students, you be the example. You're not exempt from the message about being the model Christian. All of us need to serve with humility. How do you live a model life? We look on for Paul's answer, verse 20. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. How do you live a model life? Number two, you speak with truth. You speak with truth. In these couple of verses, Paul leans on the, the usefulness of truth. He's telling us about truth, but he's, he's showing us how it, how it works. And he gives us a couple of thoughts here. First, there is the truth of the word's benefit, the Bible's benefit. He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, if it needs to be said to help you follow Jesus better, I'm going to say it. And sometimes it's like, hey, brother, like you're pretty harsh to your wife. Do you always talk to her that way? Paul says, I'm going to say it if it needs to be said. You could be more loving, friend. Work on that. 
I think your wife would appreciate it. Or a wife telling another woman at, the, at some lunch or something, hey, it seems like every time you talk about your husband, you're like kind of picking at what he does wrong. You know, sometimes it's venting or just kind of a bad day, but maybe we need to hear sometimes you're going down the wrong path. Paul says, I'm not going to shrink back. I'm not going to avoid saying certain things. I'm going to say everything that is profitable. We can't help but hear the echo in 2 Timothy 3 when Paul writes, all scripture was breathed out by God and it is profitable for this teaching role, for this exhorting role, for correcting when people are wrong. It's, it's profitable. It works. We should think of, of the Bible as, as a, a massive tool chest. You know, I've got this little toolbox at home and little teeny drawers and a few little tools in there. And every time I walk out of Home Depot, right there in the big garage doors as you're leaving, there's those massive toolboxes. Like, I can't even reach the top shelf in some of them. And you can stack them up and roll them around. You could fill those things with all kinds of tools. That's the kind of chest the Bible is. It's this massive tool chest with all of this profitable truth waiting to be utilized in our lives. Paul says, I'm not going to shrink back from speaking what is true. No, I don't think Paul is saying we have the right to be rude and obnoxious, jump to judgments and just start dispensing, you know, harsh truth to everyone. But go back to where we started. He says, you know how I lived among you. He was in these people's homes. He ate meals with them. He had their kids bouncing on on his knee. He played pickleball with them. Maybe. Maybe that was a lost sport and it's been revived. He's saying, you know me. And he says, you know that I would speak to you, but it was always because I knew God's word would help It would push you along. And so I won't shrink back. I will speak with truth. We speak with the truth when we really believe the words benefit. And that's his public ministry. He says as much, teaching you in public, but he also says from house to house. So it's those public lectures, sermons, but it was also those private conversations and discipleship. Maybe one-on-one or one on the family or a couple of families gathered as some of you do in different groups. The design of our conversations with one another should be built on the hope that God's word profits us. And let's face it, sometimes life is hard and busy and we kind of get going And we're a little out of sorts, and we need someone speaking with truth to to help us. We don't have to feel bad about that. We embrace that, and we thank a brother or sister, a spouse, a, a parent for saying what is true. Model Christians speak with truth. So do you believe the Bible is profitable for all areas of your life? Do you believe the Bible is profitable for all the conversations you will have about life, such as war overseas, such as cultural war here in our own nation, about politics? Talk about those things 
or don't if you don't have Bible to insert into these conversations. Speak with truth. It is profitable. The Bible helps you speak intelligently about politics, about culture, about war, about gender, about all the issues that you'll hear about every day of the week. The wisdom of God is ours for the using. And Paul says, let us be sure to utilize the truth of the words profitability. But then in verse 21, there's the truth of the gospel's demands. Paul says, I witnessed, I testified to Jews and Greeks of what? Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. This this is the heart of the book of Acts, the advance of the kingdom of God by which you enter repentance with repentance and faith. So our conversations about the gospel must ultimately end with you need to repent before God and believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord. That's, That's the ultimate end. There's a lot of bridge building that we can do, having people over to our homes and we can small talk and we can begin to get to know them and their family and we can talk about our church. We can talk about the goodness of God and the bounty we receive from him at Thanksgiving. We can talk about the birth of Jesus at Christmas, but eventually the gospel must include repentance toward God. They must know as sinners that they have sinned against a holy God. And then the good news comes crashing in on the heels of that bad news. You're a sinner. And God is angry at sinners every day, the scriptures tell us. However, that same God demonstrated his love to us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died. So tell them what faith in our Lord Jesus Christ would look like. We must speak the truth, believing that the Bible is profitable and believing that the gospel works. Say with Paul, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not afraid to tell someone they've sinned against God. You don't have to say they're not good enough for our church or you're a bad person or you're not as good as I am. None of that matters. In the end, they stand before a holy God. Repentance toward God and faith in Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the truth with which we must speak. How do you live a model life? Number three, Paul continues. We must live by faith. In verse 22, we see that this faith is in the Spirit's leading. He says, And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. How do you speak of being constrained by the Spirit? Probably varies in the room. Some of you might say, well, I I was reading this passage on humility or kindness, and and I just, just kind of felt like I needed to be more kind this week. Okay, well... If we zoomed in on that, what do you mean you felt that? What do you think that means in Bible terms? We might be able to say, 
I was surrendered to the word and to the spirit and, and the spirit was leading me into the fruit of the spirit, a kindness and a goodness. That's the spirit's work. That wasn't your feeling that was mustered. We often speak maybe of the Lord led me to write somebody a, a letter or send a gift or to make a phone call or send a text. That, that's healthy. It's, it's a reminder that there really is that lost other person of the Trinity, that Holy Spirit. We do have to be careful in our, in our desire to get the Holy Spirit right according to God's revelation about that spirit. Sometimes we kind of throw out the baby with the bathwater and we're like, okay, those people are crazy. Like that stuff they're doing is nowhere in scripture. But we kind of don't even want to get close to it. So we just really don't say much about the Holy Spirit. And even a text like this might seem mysterious to us constrained by the Spirit, bound by the Spirit. He'd use that same word a little later about being bound. So think that through this week. Maybe, maybe you would be helped by reading Galatians 5 and seeing the lust of the flesh, how, how that remnant of the flesh would desire to do bad things, and yet the Spirit will lead us to do good things, and maybe your beginning place at understanding being bound by the Spirit would be a simple prayer. Lord, help me not to do that bad stuff and help me to do this stuff by your Spirit. And see how he answers. See how you take some baby steps in your understanding of the Holy Spirit. Because a life lived by faith, Paul says, is a life of faith in the Spirit's leading. Also in verse 22, this is faith that is exercised in the face of uncertainty. I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. That sounds confident. And it is not knowing what will happen to me there. We would argue from what he says in the following verse, not fully knowing. Not knowing the timetable, how this is exactly going to unfold. But he does have some indication from past trials and the Spirit's prompting that this doesn't end well. There is uncertainty at least. But our point is that there was faith in the face of uncertainty. We're seeing them opposed to each other, but we're not seeing that faith has to yield to uncertainty. Quite the opposite. Faith stands resolutely without knowing what's next. It feels like blind faith, but then we know it's really not because we know who God is. We've seen his character in his word. We know his promises. We trust his goodness. So I'm not blindly standing. I have full faith in the God that I can see and know personally. But I can't see what's around the bend. I don't know what this afternoon or tomorrow holds. I can't tell you, trust God because everything's going to turn out okay this week. I can't say that. But I can say, trust God. Live by faith in the face of unknowns and uncertainties. 
That's why the psalmist would say, I I don't have to fear the bad news, the diagnosis, the undoing of a relationship, the fallout from conflict, the, the threat of jobs being cut at the end of the year. All of that may be sitting right out there waiting for us to march through December, and here it comes. But it's faith in the midst of all those uncertainties, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what lies ahead. That's the Christian life. Oh, we love to claim the just shall live by faith. Just show me what's next, and then I'll boldly tackle it. But we don't have that luxury. We actually have a greater luxury just living today and trusting God to guide us into tomorrow. He's better at tomorrow's than we are anyway. You know what it's like to scheme and plan your week or your tomorrow only to have it completely undone. So leave the uncertain tomorrows to God and fight for faith in that God today. So we think of living by faith, it's faith in the Spirit's leading, it's faith in the face of uncertainty, and it's faith in light of eternal values. Paul says, I'm going to Jerusalem. I don't really know what's going to happen other than the Spirit's given me enough clues that it's going to be tough. Verse 25, and now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Paul has that to say to the church. I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, and it may not end well, but just know I'm leaving here, and I'm okay with that. I may not see you again. I'm trusting the Lord. How do we balance this? And the key is with verse 24 that he puts right in the middle here. Afflictions await, yes, imprisonment probably. He didn't know it, but it would end at his execution at the hands of Nero. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul says, not my life's worthless. I'm of no value. We hear that a lot today because our culture is basically wholeheartedly embraced evolutionary theory. It it inherently diminishes the value of man. We're, We're just... Creatures like anything else out there in nature, and whether the raccoon gets run over by the road or I take my own life, it doesn't matter. So that kind of thinking is prevalent. I don't matter. It's no big deal. I'm worthless. The Bible shouts just the opposite. Paul is not giving a nod to that kind of thinking. Paul's saying, I don't value my life or count it precious to myself, is very much an evaluation of two things. Is it more important that I live a life of comfort, that I map out my own life 
and do what I think is good and safe and reasonable, or should I do whatever God wants me to do, knowing that would have the greatest value for the glory of God's name and the advance of his kingdom? And he's saying, when I compare these two things, I just can't say I'm choosing my own life. I'll do it my way. I'm not going to do that because I see the value of God's way. So don't misread his language as some kind of pity party, some kind of depression, some kind of self-harm, low self-esteem. That's not it. It's clearly a comparison. I can live for me or I can live for the kingdom. I can live for the God who made me and counts me as valuable, as precious, as a treasure. My value, my preciousness, my price, my worth is wrapped up in Christ. That's already been established by God. He has stamped his image on us. So we don't have to spend a lot of time thinking about our value. We should be spending our time thinking about the value of my life invested in kingdom work. Paul lived by faith in light of eternal values. His choice was declared. He'll not choose comfort or success or prosperity or safety over faithfulness. And if God's plan for him is to not have comfort and safety, then his choice remains the same. God may not call us to unsafety, to discomfort. You may live out your days in prosperous America, and there's no sin in that. That's God's business. But he may call us to sacrifice. We may not always have the luxury of the freedoms we have, especially in the context of religious freedom. Or God may decide your gifts are ripe and sharpened and you are ready to go somewhere very unsafe and very challenging and very uncomfortable. And the life of faith is a call to be ready for that, to be ready for prosperity and avoiding its pitfalls or to be ready for great sacrifice and its demands. I think it would be helpful for us to meditate this week on this question, how would you define the course God has given you? Paul says, I'm not going to live life for me. I'm going to finish this course God's given me. And we kind of know what his life looks like, his apostolic ministry. You're not an apostle, but you have some kind of course, some kind of purpose. What do you think it is? It's not a trick question. It's pretty open-ended. But you should explore that because knowing what your course is will then lead to the possibility of confidence, saying, I know what it is and I'm choosing it. How do you live a model life? You serve with humility, you speak with truth, you live by faith, and finally, you rest in grace. You rest in grace. Paul says, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. He's saying, I've done everything God's asked me to do. I've talked to you as God's people. I've talked to the unbelievers. I've shared the good news with them. I, I, I'm spending myself for the good of God's kingdom, 
for his church. He said, I, I can rest well. You remember his words at the end of his life when he is in prison and he is about to be executed. He says, I fought a good fight. And if that's not enough, the Greek words are even more intense. I've agonized a good agony. I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. So I'm ready, he says. I think the older you get, the probably the easier it is to, for those words to come off your tongue. I'm ready. I'll live a few more years if God gives them, but I'm ready. There's a rest that settles in after living a life of faith. There's a rest that we should all be able to experience that comes in saying, I did what God wanted me to do. This reveals the beauty of God's grace. Number one, it's enabling grace. Paul served with humility. He spoke with truth. He lived by faith. It was a model life. But what did Paul write in 1 Corinthians to the church? He says, I am what I am by the grace of God. Enabling grace means I'll be able to rest at the end of my life and at the end of this day knowing I did what God wanted me to do. I have nothing I can boast in because I did what I did and I am what I am by the grace of God. Paul in that text says, I labored more abundantly than all the others. But that doesn't matter because it was by the grace of God. It's enabling grace. You should seek to be a model life. But we have to know that's only possible by grace. Finally, know that there's someone here today that might be saying, my life could never be a model for someone else. You don't know the brokenness. You, you don't know the scars that I have. My life is not a model for others. Well, I would argue with you kindly from Scripture to say, who, who is this guy in Acts 20 saying, you know how I lived among you and then unfolding this model Christian life. The same guy who elsewhere said, follow me as I follow Christ. He's a persecutor of the church in his unbelieving days. He was an accomplice to the torture and murder of Christians. And yet he writes to Timothy and says, the grace of God arrested me so that I would be an example of the kind of mercy that God has on sinners. Every life touched by the grace of God can be a model life. All that stuff of the past, the brokenness, the scars of sin, they are all swallowed up in the grace of God. And so you've heard the language of a trophy of grace. It's because it really is true what we sing, that it was amazing grace that saved a saint like me. No, we sure don't sing it that way. We sing it with gusto because we know it's true. He saved wretches like we were. We rest in grace because we know it's enabling grace, but we need to make sure we understand the nature of forgiving grace. That's how you become a model Christian. You rest on God's grace and you know his forgiveness and you cling to what we sang. He clings to us. He will hold me fast. 
when the tempter would prevail, and he will at times, and he's going to come and tell you you're not worth much. You've messed up before, and why should anyone follow you, and how could you ever be a help to the church? And you're going to have to be bold in that moment to remember you belong to your heavenly Father, and he has made you for his glory and for the good of his church. It's enabling and forgiving grace. When we think of the model life, we should think long-term and short-term. Long-term, because we remember Paul at the end of his life saying, I'm done. I've done everything I need to do. That should be our goal. But frankly, for some of us that still feel young or are young, it really, the end, finishing the course, it seems a long way off. That's just the way our human minds think. We don't like to entertain that tomorrow could be the end for me. And that's okay. Think long-term first. I will get to the point in my life where I want to be able to say, I've, I've run my race, and I've done it by God's grace. We should think of faithfulness over a lifetime, standing before the Lord when our life is over. But there is also the short term. Paul also wrote that each day he was concerned to have a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. So every day is, is, a, is a race to run, is a fight to fight, is a course to finish. So we can think short term as well. And we can think short term as, as in today. Maybe we don't feel like we've really blown it yet. Maybe you feel like you're, you're getting through Sunday pretty well. Well, we've got a long way to go. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So let's keep our eye on the goal, a model Christian life today. And then tomorrow, think a model Christian life. And the next day, and eventually those days of model Christian living become a lifetime and a legacy and a grandpa and a great-grandpa looking down over hundreds of those that have been exposed to the gospel's truth. A model Christian life. It's attainable, but it starts today with our obedience to the word that we've heard this morning. So, Heavenly Father, allow your Holy Spirit to whisper into our ears this week the truth of a model Christian life to remind us of what it means to exemplify the life of Christ for those around us. May we be that beacon of truth and light and hope and comfort. May we, as your people, live by faith. May we speak with truth. May we know what it is to serve with humility and then having done our best by your grace day by day to, to simply rest, to simply rest in what you've done for us. Lord, take us from this place. We're going a lot of different directions. We're, we're back to a, a routine. But don't let us forget this, your word. Don't let us walk away from this mirror and forget we really do need to make some improvements. So thank you for your patience for your promise to sanctify us and to keep bringing us along. May we cooperate with your spirit, fully yielded, ready to be doers of the word that we've heard this morning. 
and for all the change that would come about in our lives, for those that might see our good works and glorify you, we'll be thankful that we could contribute to the advance of the kingdom and the glory of your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, by whom we pray. Amen.